Uh, recently, Netflix released a documentary uh, called Making a Murderer. How many of you have watched this documentary? How many of you watched it in one day? Any confessions? No? Yes. All right, man in the red shirt. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, this is about uh, a man, Stephen Avery, who was uh, imprisoned for 18 years, and he, although he was innocent of a crime, he was in jail. And so in 2003, the Innocence Project uh, worked and freed Stephen Avery from jail, uh, acquitting him of all the charges because of new DNA evidence. And so uh, the, the movie follows this, this arc, but then the twist is that he was then re-imprisoned for another charge, another uh, horrific charge of murder. And he still remains in jail. And so the documentary is exploring to what degree did the sheriff's office have to play in this? And was their investigation uh, tainted the second time? If it was the first, was their motive in the second time because of how they felt ashamed and embarrassed of what happened in the first? And it's a great documentary. Uh, and it's not the first uh, film or documentary to explore this innocent but prove proven guilty uh, before being found actually innocent in a, in a storyline. Uh, many of you might remember The Fugitive, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones. Uh, and it was about the conviction of Sam Shepard, who was accused of murdering his pregnant wife, uh, but he was innocent. Uh, you might remember the movie In the Name of the Father, and it's about the Guilford Four, four people falsely convicted of the 1974 IRA pub bombing in Ireland. You know, the podcast Serial, any of you listen to the podcast Serial? Over 80 million downloads of their first season, and they're exploring the exact same arc. Is Adan Sayyid, an innocent man falsely imprisoned. You see, when the justice system fails us, when the innocent are proven guilty, that's a story we want to listen to. That's a story that grips us, especially if shady motives have led to the conviction. We want to know about that story. Today, in Mark's gospel, Jesus begins his round in the courts, and we see a gross miscarriage of justice. We see a gross miscarriage of justice, incomparable to these stories that have so captured our hearts and our cultural imagination. While uh, Jesus will ultimately end up in the hands of Pilate in the Roman court, he begins in the Sanhedrin, the highest form of court in Judaism in that day. And our passage today primarily takes place in that place. But while Jesus' trial unfolds, simultaneously there's another trial taking place outside the courts, the trial of Peter. There he stands on trial in the court of public opinion. And Mark's gospel is always, always driven forward by this question, who is Jesus? And Mark intentionally juxtaposes these two trials. They unfold simultaneously in his gospel because while the highest court of justice will deny who Jesus is, and even his closest friend will deny who Jesus is, on this night, Jesus stands on trial and definitively declares who he is. The answer that we were given at the beginning of the Mark's gospel, Jesus now unveils for the world to hear. So here's our big idea this morning. Jesus has not denied any part of himself to us, even though we've denied him. Jesus has not denied any part of himself to us, even though we've denied him. So open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. And if you don't have a Bible, everything will be on the screen, so you can follow along that way. 
And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warning himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. To understand how we ended up here with Jesus on trial, we do need to review a bit of the backstory because it will help us make sense of what's happening. Since early on in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, Jesus has uh, roused the suspicions of the highest forms of authority, the religious elites of his day. He's disrupting their status quo, and they do not like it, especially because he doesn't seem to respect the laws and their customs in the same way that they do. And so in chapter 3, we learn that a group of leaders have begun conspiring how to destroy Jesus. And ever since, opposition has been growing more and more, and this tension only escalates once Jesus entered into Jerusalem in chapter 11. Because now Jesus is on their turf, he's in their home, and he's still disrupting the status quo. He publicly tells a parable in which he accuses them of being murderers. This obviously was not well received. And so in response, they try to trick Jesus with a bunch of questions, and yet they can't seem to trap him in his talk. And so in the beginning of chapter 14, the beginning of the chapter we're in, Mark writes, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And as we come to the end of this chapter, it appears they've succeeded. They've worked with Judas to have Jesus arrested. He's been arrested, and now they have him in their hand. And at this point in the gospel, Jesus, he's been betrayed, as he said he would be. All his followers have fallen away, as he said they would. And yet Peter lingers, we're told. Jesus announced when they would all fall away, and Peter boldly declared, you know, even though they all fall away, I won't. And so surely as he warms himself at this fireside, he's repeating in his mind, I will not, I will not, I will not fall away, I can do this. Now, the high priests, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, they've gathered together. The Sanhedrin, the highest court of law, it's in session. But it's before the roosters crowed, which means it's in secret. It's before the sun rises. And as a court, they were supposed to meet in midday in public. Mark tells us that they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They found none. You see, they're seeking evidence against Jesus. They're not working on the basis of truth, but the desire to find guilt, any guilt. They want to put Jesus away. They want to destroy him. That's what's driving them. The problem is Jesus is not guilty. He's innocent. And so before we move into the specifics of the trial, it's important to know that in every detail that Mark provides, he shows how the Sanhedrin short-circuited procedures and contravened their own laws to expedite Jesus' execution. They broke all of the rules, and so this is an unjust court in an unjust hearing. And Mark stresses this gross miscarriage of justice that's taking place on the Passover morning. So let's get into the trial. The leaders, they begin to gather Witnesses, but they don't search for credible witnesses, we're told. They search for false witnesses, people who are willing to lie on the stand. Look at verses 56 through 61. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. 
And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and did not answer. The many false witnesses can't get their stories straight, which isn't surprising when you get a group of liars in a room. But Mark wants to point this out twice. Their testimony did not agree. Their testimony did not agree. Lie upon lie and upon lie, but they can't uh, concoct a cohesive story to put Jesus away. Why, Jesus, do you remain silent in the face of these accusations? But even if Jesus were to speak, what could he say? Those gathered, they're not interested in truth. They're not interested in what he has to say. They're trying to find any reason whatsoever, even if it's going to be based upon a lie, to execute Jesus. This is beyond what social scientists call confirmation bias. This is motive. Their hearts and their minds are made up. They want to kill Jesus. They're already set in that direction. And so what could Jesus say? But more importantly, Jesus remains silent because Isaiah prophesied about this long ago in chapter 53 of his, well, we call it the fifth gospel, but in chapter three of his prophetic writing. There he describes Jesus as our suffering servant. He writes, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is fulfilling what God said long ago would take place. The God of truth stands confidently yet quietly in a court of lies. He does not open his mouth to defend himself, at least not against false accusations. So when the false accusations don't work, the high priest tries another angle. Look at at, uh, verses 61 through 62. The high priest asked him, Are you the Christ the son of the blessed. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus is no longer silent. Jesus responds, I am. I am the Christ. I am the son of the most blessed, which is another way of saying, I am the son of God. Jesus is saying, I am both of these things. I'm both of these things. Now, to be clear, Jews didn't exactly expect the Christ to be God. They knew the Christ would inherit an everlasting throne, but they had no expectation whatsoever that the Christ would be divine. And so Jesus adds to his testimony, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, I fear this doesn't clarify much for us, does it? If you asked me, Alistair, are you the prime minister with an everlasting seat in parliament? I would say, obviously. But I might need to clarify. And so if I added, you'll see me seated at the right hand of the Supreme Court coming with the justice of Trudeau's haircut. It would clarify things for you. No jokes land this morning. The metaphors, though, would make more sense. But they're atrocious in a sense because I'm confusing the way things work. You know, Trudeau's hair has nothing to do with justice, and the prime minister can't sit in the Supreme Court. 
Everyone in the room, everyone who belonged to the Sanhedrin, the high priest especially, would immediately know what Jesus is saying. The metaphors immediately make sense to them. And they feel he's confusing the facts. They know who the Son of Man is. It comes from the prophet Daniel. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes from the throne of God to earth to judge the world and to establish God's everlasting kingdom. They also know that the right hand of God is a position of equal authority to God. And it's a position of the judge. And so when Jesus declares that he'll come on the clouds of heaven, he's also declaring that his very presence is divine. These, and sometimes we miss this, these are the climactic words of Jesus in the whole gospel. Jesus makes this mock trial into an epiphany scene. And we've seen this before. He has worked tirelessly to reveal himself to his disciples, and they don't get it, and they don't get it. And so now, before his enemies, he reveals who he is. An epiphany is reserved even for those who hate him. Even in the face of hatred, he will show his love. He will make himself known. And so he finally says, yes, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And from here on out in the gospel, Christ's words will be few. He'll only reaffirm this confession to Pilate and then lastly cry out in anguish on the cross. You might remember up until this point, whenever Jesus does a miracle, what does he do? Keep it on the down low. Don't tell people. Scholars call this the messianic secret. Someone declares who he is or, you know, a demon shouts out who he is. He says, no, 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 no. Hush. Keep it a secret. But now, in the words that will seal his death, he opens up the secret. He declares it. He says, I am these things. And it's for the public record. He's declaring, yes, I am the Messiah and I am also God. And I will come in judgment as judge. I am the Messiah, I am also God, and I'm going to come in judgment, and you're going to see it. You'll see that I am the true judge. You see, he finally makes the secret known to the whole world only in light of the reason that he'll be crucified. And he's declared without any shadow of a doubt that he is God. How do we know this for sure? How, how am I not just reading Christian theology into the text? How do we know Jesus is declaring he's God? The response. Look at verses 63 through 64. The high priest tore his garments, kind of like Hulk Hogan, you know, he just, <clears throat> and uh, said, what further witness do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. You see, they don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. You're declaring your God? That's blasphemy. Blasphemy is the, the crime of assuming to oneself the rights that are only reserved of God. And it was punishable by death in ancient Judaism. And so Jesus, in declaring who he is, in declaring it openly, in telling the truth, he hands his enemies exactly what they want, a valid reason to kill him. Jesus will not be crucified for being the Messiah. Others made that claim. He's going to be crucified for claiming that he's God. How, Jesus, can you expect us to accept a testimony like this? Perhaps we could accept that he's the Messiah or a Jewish prophet or a Jewish king. 
But the Son of God, the Son of Man, who's seated at the right hand of God, who will return to establish the kingdom of heaven before he first he will come to judge the living and the dead. I've met people who've claimed to be God. And I'm not quite ready to sign up for their cause. You know, usually when someone says they're God, it is a sign of a severe mental health problem. How is Jesus any different? And how can we know that he actually made this claim? What if it's just a fabrication of the disciples? What if the disciples just added this in? And there's a lot of debate uh, around whether the Gospels are reliable. And one of the arguments that I like for their credibility is how the Gospels keep in details that would otherwise hurt themselves. Like, if they didn't keep this detail, they, they would have been more plausible to everybody. But they kept this detail, and it makes it more difficult for everybody. Like Jesus claiming to be God. This is one of the details that would have been removed if you were fabricating a story that was going to be plausible to the masses because you have to remember that Christianity was a Jewish sect at first. Your target audience were Jews, Orthodox Jews, conservative Jews who knew their Bibles. There was no expectation whatsoever in any of the writings of Judaism, uh, at least as they understood it, that the Messiah would be God himself. So why did the disciples throw in this offensive idea? You know, if they had concocted it, it wouldn't draw anyone into their movement. Because we see a, a claim like this, it leads to a charge of blasphemy. You're putting your life on the line. Or if the disciples imported it from another religion, as some scholars suggest, it would actually discredit them in the, the context that they're in. They'd be charged of idolatry and false worship, and the consequence would be death. You see, it's of no advantage to them whatsoever to claim that Jesus made this claim unless he actually did. It didn't help their case in their context and in their time. This claim gave the authorities the right to kill Jesus. This is not how a group of conservative Jews would start a new religion. So why record it? Only if he said it. But why should we believe it if he said it? C.S. Lewis, he's reflected on this a great deal. And uh, in his 1950 essay, uh, What Are We to Make of Jesus? Lewis writes, The only person who can say this sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from uh, that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. If you think you're a poached egg, when you're not looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane. But if you think you're God... There is no chance for you. We may note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, and adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Hatred, terror, or adoration. You see, in response to this claim that he's God, we read in verse 65, some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. In other words, tell us who hit you. And the guards received him with blows. Hatred. That's the response to this claim. Violent hatred. The great irony of this scene is that the judge of the universe who is innocent of all accusation, is unjustly treated and falsely condemned by the courts of man. 
The one who should be lifted up and respected and adored is hated and treated with contempt, ridiculed and harmed physically. God's son is received with blows. And Israel's greatest representative, their high priest, the representative of the people, fails to recognize the Messiah in their midst and rejects God himself. What we see in this is a gross miscarriage of justice. And we see especially how pre-existing motives and assumptions drove it forward. And this is a caution for all of us. If we approach the question, who is Jesus?, we often think that we can approach this question neutrally. Uh, one of my professors always used to uh, say to me, there's no epistemological Switzerland. Uh, what he meant is that we're always biased. Uh, we're always reading and learning through a lens which has been shaped by our upbringing, by our culture, by our friends, by the newspapers we read. We never approach any issue neutrally like Switzerland apparently does. So the first step is to acknowledge our biases and then come to the issue at hand. The first step is to say, actually, I can't address this question neutrally. I never will be able to. I need to acknowledge my biases and then address the question. So what could motivate us negatively to reject Jesus? What could motivate us to reject his claim of being God in the flesh? I think the most common is heartbreak. The most common is heartbreak. Russell Baker was five years old uh, when his father was suddenly taken to the hospital and died. He grew up, became a New York Times columnist, quite famous, and in his autobiography, he recounts the impact of his father's death on him. And here's what he wrote. For the first time, I thought seriously about God. That afternoon, though I couldn't have phrased it this way, I decided that God was a lot less interested in people than anybody in Morrisonville was willing to admit. That day, I declared that God was not entirely to be trusted. After that, I never cried again with any conviction, nor expected much of anyone's God except indifference, nor loved deeply without fear that it would cost me dearly in pain. At the age of five, I had become a skeptic. There's a recent study led by the psychologist uh, Julie Exline of the uh, Case Western Reserve University, uh, which is a top research facility in the U.S., and her findings support Baker's experience. In studying college students, her research indicated that atheists and agnostics reported more anger at God during their lifetimes than believers. A separate study also found that this pattern was among bereaved individuals too. Our pain is often a motive that causes us to reject God. And you might feel just in denying God because you feel if there is a God, he is unjust. Pain may even make you receive God gladly with blows. And I don't want to undermine your heartbreak because it's not my story, it's yours. And I don't know how painful it is. And I can't stand here and declare why God allowed your pain to happen. But I do hope you'll consider how your pain can motivate you to reject God. It can be a lens that distorts seeing clearly. It can be a lens that drives you to reject what Jesus claims to be. My point in all of this is that there is always a motive behind our rejection of God. We never come to the question, who is Jesus, 
neutrally. It's never purely rational because we're not purely rational beings. Our humanity is far more complicated than that. So back to the text. While this trial with the Sanhedrin is unfolding, Peter's outside warming himself at the fireplace, remember? And so now Mark pans out and and returns to the scene unfolding at the fireplace. Look at verses 66 through 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You are also with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Peter is in a different sort of trial, the trial of public opinion. But whereas Jesus is tried with those with immense power, those who can end his life, Peter's trial is conducted by the opposite, a servant girl, the least of the least in society, someone who had no Influence, no status, no claim, no power. And twice, Jesus, Peter denies knowing Jesus. But he starts vaguely. Do you notice that? He starts with a generalized denial, a soft denial. I don't know what you mean. He's just trying to avoid the topic. But then some of the bystanders say, you have a Galilean accent, man. You must be one of them. If you're wondering what that sounded like, it sounded like Roger. And so Peter responds strongly. He says, if I'm lying, I'm a cursed man walking. Then he swears, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And there it is. Luke writes that after this final denial, Jesus locked eyes with Peter. Mark writes in verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Remember, this all happens while Jesus himself is on trial. This happens while Jesus does not deny who he is, even though it means he'll be put to death. Those who arrested Jesus and placed him on trial deny who he is, and now Peter joins their ranks. Jesus, he tells the truth, and it leads to his death. Peter lies and saves his own life. The contrast couldn't be more stark. But how is it that Peter oscillated from declaring, I will never deny you, never, to so quickly denying Jesus in front of a little servant girl? You see, I think Peter declared he would never deny Jesus because it looked good on him at the time. He made himself stand above the rest of the disciples and say, they might fall away, but not me. He led the way in appearing more spiritual than the rest. Thoreau uh, wrote, I count the cost of a thing in terms of how much life I have to give to obtain it. I count the cost of a thing in terms of how much life I have to give to it. In this initial declaration, Peter counts the cost. It's very low, and he gains a lot, and so he makes the declaration. But now, he sees Jesus beaten and condemned to death. 
He's surrounded with people who are saying, aren't you with him? And he sees vividly the actual cost of discipleship. If Peter follows Jesus any further, he's going to have to deny his own life. He will have to take up his cross, deny himself, and follow Jesus to death. And the cost is too much for Peter. Crucifixion is not for those who want to preserve their own lives. And Peter's terrified by the cost of what it means to follow Jesus any further. And that's why he denies Jesus. That's his motive, self-preservation. And sadly, we see that Peter is not much different than the religious leaders who put Jesus on trial. Yes, they are motivated by hatred, but to some degree they are also motivated by terror or by fear. They were in power. They were in the status quo. The system worked for them, and Jesus was disrupting the order of things. They didn't want to lose it. And they knew if they were to believe this Messiah, if they were to follow him, everything would have to change. You might understand, if you're going to follow Jesus, or if you're going to keep following Jesus, it disrupts your status quo. It disrupts your normal. And it can sometimes disturb you, because you like how you're living. You want to preserve it. You want to maintain yourself and your own freedom. You don't want to have to change and conform to his ways. Well, there's your motive for rejecting Jesus, ultimately. Self-preservation. Now, the passage ends with Peter weeping. Peter weeping. And remember, he declared, if I know this man, I'm cursed. He's weeping as a cursed man. And it leaves us with this tension. How are we supposed to respond to you, Jesus? Because the Sanhedrin denied you. Even Peter denied you. Which means surely we've denied you too. But there's hope in the weeping. There's hope in the weeping. Although Peter's fallen short, although he's denied the Lord, although he has cursed himself, he's also convicted. He's horrified by what he's done, and he weeps. It should be translated, he shook with violent sobs. We too must weep over how we've denied Jesus. Because all of us deny Jesus before we accept him. Every single one of us. And some of you may have denied him again. And while this might be more drastic than you would put it, what? when we deny who Jesus is, when we say he is not the Lord of the universe, he's not God, we're like those who presided over his trial and condemned him to death. Perhaps in your mind you would not crucify him, but you are saying that he has no place in your life. And when you deny who he is, you're effectively saying he's dead to you. He has no living place in your soul. But if you lock eyes with him and you see the truth of what he's declaring, you'll weep. You'll weep. Alternatively, you're welcome to slander Jesus and even beat him and he'll take the blows. But he will remain silent because he knows there's nothing he can say to comfort you. All he can do is absorb the hurt and he does this because he's your suffering servant. He suffers for your heartbreak and he offers his presence in your pain and he is there in the midst of your tears. 
Pain can either drive you away from God or it can drive you right into his heart. And weeping can be the beginning of adoration. You see, we must weep over God himself being misjudged and condemned to death and mocked and spat upon and beaten. We have to weep over this miscarriage of justice. We weep over the one who's not denied himself to us, but declared to us, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. What does this mean for us? It means that Jesus is the one with all power, that Jesus will return to make things right, even our heartbreak, even our massive failures, even our denials. We might not know how exactly, but Jesus has promised he will do it. And we've seen in this passage, he does not lie. He says, you will see me return with the clouds of heaven. We will see it. Jesus will wipe away every tear. He'll bring justice for every wrong. He'll mend every heartbreak. And when you accept this about him, you'll adore him for it. Because you'll see he suffered this atrocious a miscarriage of justice for our sake. He was condemned for us because he adores us. And Jesus has not denied any part of himself to us, even though we've denied him. And if we weep over our denial, no matter how many times we've done it, he'll forgive. He'll restore. But scripture is also clear. If we continue denying him, he will ultimately deny us. Because he's put it all on the line for us. If we deny who he is and what he's done for us, there's nothing left to offer. All that's left is a curse. He's held nothing back from us, and he offers himself entirely to us, freely. Do you adore this Jesus, this man, our God? 